welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer. This is a bonus episode brought to you by our investigative platform Noteworthy, where we carry out journalistic projects based on ideas sent to us by the public. I'm Susan Daly, and this week we published the findings of an in-depth investigation by Cormac Fitzgerald from Noteworthy and Stephen McDermott of The Journal. They delved into the rules and regulations around lobbying in Ireland, who can do it and how they have to declare themselves. They took a particularly hard and long look at the register of lobbying and they found out who have been some of Ireland's most prolific lobbyists and uncovered some serious issues with how some former public officials have had their details recorded there. I'm going to call on our reporters to explain more. Cormac and Stevie, thanks for joining me. Now, let's not assume that all of our listeners know what lobbying is or what the lobbying register in Ireland actually looks like. Could you explain to us how it all works? Hi, Susan. Yeah, so lobbying is when a person or an organisation makes their views known to politicians and public servants, uh, what are known as designated public officials or DPOs. So DPOs are government ministers, TDs, councillors, senators, civil servants or special advisors and high level public officials. So not every communication is lobbying, but when you contact these people uh, about laws, policies and practices, as well as maybe seeking to have those laws, policies and practices changed, that's called lobbying. It takes many forms. It can be letters, meetings, phone calls, submissions. All of these are uh, defined as lobbying. Since 2015, anyone involved in lobbying has to register with SIPO, the Standards in Public Office Regulator. They have to file returns three times a year with details of who they are lobbying, who they are lobbying on behalf of, and what they are lobbying about. This information is then made publicly accessible on the register of lobbying at lobbying.ie. So getting back to the bolts of it then, Cormac, why do people lobby? I mean, is there actually anything intrinsically wrong with it? No, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. Lobbying in some form, it's often cited as being essential to a functioning democracy. It's a way in which citizens and representative bodies, private or public companies, they can make their views known to government, which can then take those views on board when drafting laws and rules. Everyone lobbies, charities, private companies, representative groups. On the lobbying register, there are currently just under 71,000 returns filed since 2015. So it's a very widespread, it covers all aspects of Irish society and there's nothing wrong with lobbying per se. Stephen, I'm going to go to you because I know you put some hard yards into this. For the purposes of this investigation, you looked into lobbying by former public officials or DPOs as they're called. Can you tell me a bit more about this and the lengths you had to go to to get this information? So under the Regulation of Lobbying Act, any former or current DPOs who go on to lobby have to state that they were formerly a public official and what their role was. Say if a minister or TD becomes a lobbyist after they leave the Oireachtas, whenever they file a return with SIPO, they have to state that they were a former TD or minister and that they were a former designated public official as well. For certain high-level former DPOs, there are other rules on top of that. So under Section 22 of the Regulation of Lobbying Act, certain high-level DPOs, so former ministers, Taoiseach and government special advisors, so the people who kind of advise ministers when they're in office, and as well as high-level civil servants. So they all have to adhere to a one-year cooling-off period, which means they can't lobby for a year after they leave public office. And so we focused on 
mainly these individuals, these investigation, but we particularly focused on those government special advisors and to find which former government special advisors were or are involved in lobbying. Uh, we collated a list of every advisor employed by government since 2015, which was the year that the legislation on lobbying was introduced. Um, and on top of that, we checked responses to 11 years worth of parliamentary questions. Um, we read through the statutory instruments that gave effect to the employment of special advisors. So every time a special advisor is employed by an individual government, there's a certain statutory instrument that has to be uh, written. Uh, and so all of their names can be found in those as well. So we did that. I think we have to thank you for your service there, Stephen. Now, can I go back to the cooling off period? Because that sounds key. That sounds sensible. But you found lots of exemptions. Like when is a cooling off period not a cooling off period? So, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, the cooling off period means that anyone who's a former DPO is prohibited from lobbying their former colleagues in the departments where they worked for a year after they leave public office. But of course, you can get an exemption from this as well. So there's been a couple of high profile instances over the years where a former minister has left office and then immediately gone on to uh, lobby for a lobbying group. And to do that, you have to ask SIPO to waive the cooling off period. So uh, when SIPO does this, they, they can say, yes, we'll give you the exemption, but you have to adhere to certain conditions. Like, you know, you can't lobby your former minister or you can't lobby former colleagues or, or, or things like that. And so we found that between 2016 and 2021, 24 people, and not all of these were special advisors, applied to SIPO for an exemption to the mandatory one-year cooling-off period. Now, SIPO didn't give all of these uh, 24 exemptions, but they did give most of them. Um, we wanted to find out who they were, but SIPO refuses to name those who successfully sought the exemption because uh, they cited reasons of confidentiality. Which is really not what we want to hear We'd, of course, like to know why people are getting exemptions. And there were other issues that you guys found with how the lobbying register functions. Cormac, will you tell me a little bit about the main findings there? Because I think these are so fascinating. So our investigation was split into two parts, really. First, we looked into issues with the actual lobbying register itself, how it functions and the problems with it. Then we looked into lobbying by these former high-level DPOs that Stephen mentioned, we looked into who they're lobbying, what they're lobbying about, if they needed or sought exemptions to that one year cooling off period and uh, if they got them. So primarily in the first party investigation, we found hundreds of instances in which former DPOs weren't listed as such on the register. There was no information given on their former roles. We found just under 400 returns that had this issue relating to 37 former high level DPOs, those that are defined under Section 22 of the Act. These were people lobbying across the public and private sectors. They could have been lobbying for big multinational bodies or representative groups for charities or on their own behalves. In some cases, these former DPOs also would have been involved with lobbying their former colleagues in the departments in which they used to work um, with no information being provided on whether they used to work together. I just have to underline the figure there of just under 400 returns found in your own investigations where DPOs weren't listed as such. And obviously, because you're responsible journalists, you contacted all of these former officials to question why they weren't listed as such on the lobbying register. Stephen, what kind of responses did you get from people? Yeah, in, in the majority of cases, people said that the issue was due to a human or administrative problem. Um, and they confirmed to us that they would contact SIPO to amend the relevant returns. And um, the most common reason that was given to us was people just said they'd failed to tick a box. Um, and in all those cases, people just got back onto SIPO and said, yeah, could you just tick the box for me? And the returns were corrected. Um, in other cases, those who held public position before 2015, which was when the regulations came into effect, 
um, said to us that they weren't aware that they had to declare their former DPO status on the register and um, they weren't really aware uh, of the requirements after 2015. And as a result of our inquiries, lobbyists and groups said that they contacted SIPO to amend more than 250 returns, which didn't originally identify 28 former DPOs as such on the register. It points to a big problem with the SIPO register if the monitoring of it in an investigation like ours is the only thing that, you know, caused so many amendments to be made. So what are the other problems that you found with the register? Yeah, it's a funny one because, uh, you know, for any journalist, I mean, I would use this quite a lot, uh, uh, you know, through the, through the course of journalism throughout the year. And you kind of just assume that this lobbying register is quite, you know, functional and a very, very accurate portrayal of the way things are with lobbying. But that's not actually always the case. So we actually found a lot of issues with the functionality of the register. Like it emerged that even when the names of former DPOs appear on the register, only their most recent role or department at the time of lobbying is listed. So if you have a special advisor who worked in, for example, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Justice, and they worked in the Department of Justice most recently, DPO status that is listed for them will only say Department of Justice. So if they're lobbying someone from the Department of Foreign Affairs, you won't necessarily make that connection. The search function also allows users to look for named individuals under this drop-down menu you have. So you can see all the returns in which the person is primarily responsible for lobbying. So let's say Steve McDermott is, is primarily responsible for lobbying and is a former DPO. You can search Steve McDermott's name and see that he's lobbied 10 times or whatever. But they omit cases when Steve McDermott might be involved in the lobbying as a secondary person. And if, say, Cormac Fitzgerald was a person primarily involved in lobbying, like Steve McDermott's name, if he was involved in that, won't come up as well. Stephen, just to be clear, that would be in the case of, say, a former GPO who might be managing or owning an enterprise or an institution that's involved in lobbying, even if they're not the actual person signing the email, say, on a company's specific lobbying attempt. Yeah, that's basically it. Um, And as a final note, there was also issues with downloading spreadsheets of returns, which was where people didn't appear when searching the register online at all. So you can download these Excel files of all of the lobbying in a given period. And we had instances where many names appeared in those spreadsheets that didn't actually appear on the front end of the register at all. Like, as you know, like a lot of people will just search the register themselves. They won't actually download the spreadsheets to find names as well. So yeah, a bit of a problem there too. Particularly... We're talking about the move towards more digitization of public services, and this is meant to be a very public facing service and the usability of it. If you have to download an Excel sheet, it's not really how most people want to spend their evenings. Cormac, did you contact SIPO about these returns and what did they say? So we contacted SIPO with the details of our findings, and while they didn't comment specifically on any of our individual findings, they said that the purpose of the Regulation of Lobbying Act is to make lobbying more transparent and that SIPO encourages compliance in the first instance. So this means that uh, it brings people into compliance where there may be inaccuracies in the returns by notifying them of such Uh, In relation to some of the technical issues that we found with the register, SIPO said that the register, it had been tested extensively in 2015 before it went live to ensure that it was user-friendly and easy to navigate for the public. It also said that a number of performance issues were identified and upgrades made to the system during 2021, and that SIPO is currently working with the IT provider uh, on further refinements to to the functionality of the register. Yeah, well, considering, you know, you guys are experienced in this kind of work and and looking through spreadsheets and pulling data together. But you were working on this in 2022 and found some difficulties in accessing that information. So we'd hope that that was included in the further refinements and groups have been active in calling for strengthening laws around lobbying, I believe. Yes, most definitely. Uh 
the main group really at the center of this is Transparency International Ireland. Uh, they advocate for increased transparency and accountability in public life. They were really involved with uh, lobbying, I suppose, for the for the register to be introduced in the first place and have kind of been monitoring the whole way. Uh, it's chief executive John Devitt, he spoke to us about some of the issues with the, the register and the laws around lobbying. Um, he said that in relation to, to inaccurate returns, that the failure to declare former DPO status, uh, that meant that the return was incomplete and that it was very important for SIPO to, to pursue this. Transparency International Ireland uh, also said that the technology behind the register is seven years old at this stage, so it's really due an upgrade. Um, John David said that strong laws and regulations were really needed to, to ensure transparency and public confidence uh, in how the government functions and a functioning lobbying register is, is, is quite integral to this. Sure, and I note there that SIPO did say that they had made upgrades to the system last year and that they're working on further refinements, but obviously much, much further to go there. Stephen, what else did you uncover over the course of your investigation? Yeah, so I guess in general, we found a high level of lobbying by former high level designated public officials. Um, so just to give you some of the numbers on that, uh, we found that at least 86 individuals who held senior positions in government departments have been involved in lobbying since 2015. And of these, 62 were former special advisors to ministers, Taoiseach, ministers of state, and other high-level government officials. Um, as I said previously, the names of 24 people up to 2021 were granted exemptions uh, to the one-year cooling-off period, but they weren't released by SIPO. But we did some digging and we found the names of nine of them who were granted these exemptions. I guess then we also found just multiple instances where former DPOs lobbied their former ministers or their former colleagues or department officials, all of which, of course, is within the rules. Like it's nothing that says you can't do that, but it just shows that sometimes there's a a connection there that 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 is used for lobbying. And all within the rules, as you say, but this kind of shows that this is a common route once people have been in a certain role that, you know, they can come back into the fray using that information. Transparency then is really important around that. So does the government have any plans to amend lobbying laws or to improve the register and its functionality? Yeah, so there have been calls for a long time from the likes of Transparency International Ireland and uh, opposition politicians for SIPO to be given more powers, more teeth really to pursue people who who break the rules around lobbying. Uh, As of now, for example, they can pursue or sanction people who might break that one year cooling off period. So while under Section 22 of the Act, uh, former DPOs must adhere to that one-year cooling-off period. There's actually no consequences for them, no legal consequences for them if they don't. Uh, this is due to change. Uh, there's a new regulation of lobbying amendment bill that is currently before the Houses of the Oireachtas. Uh, the plan is that this will provide for sanctions and fines of up to €25,000 for people who breach that cooling-off period. So that's that's quite a notable change and one that has been welcomed by transparency advocates and, and by SIPO itself. Uh, but TII and the opposition, well, they say the bill doesn't really go far enough. It's it's more concerned with sort of technical amendments and the functionality of the register rather than an overhaul of the laws around lobbying. Uh, one big thing that people have been calling for is for that cooling off period to be extended to, to two years rather than one year. But there's no sign of this coming from government. As of yet, SIPO also has 22 recommendations that it wants to see implemented that it's actually been calling for for quite a long time. These are around generally increasing its own powers and improving the functionality and the operability of the lobbying register. 
but none of these have actually been introduced by government to date, uh, though some, like the new laws around breaching the cooling off period that I mentioned, they're included in the bill currently making its way through the, the House of the Oireachtas and are set to be implemented then. So, you know, there there is some movement by government to, to address the, I suppose, the deficiencies that some people see in the laws, but according to advocates, there's there's a lot more to be done. Thanks, Cormac and Stephen. Lots of work there from Noteworthy and The Journal. Lots more to be done and wants to be done by SIPO and then by the government to update and strengthen their ability to do so. You have been listening to this bonus episode of The Explainer brought to you by Noteworthy.ie. It was produced by Laura Byrne. If you want to learn more about our work at Noteworthy and how we source our stories from you, our readers and listeners, head to our site at Noteworthy.ie and sign up to our newsletter, which gives you an insider look at our latest investigations by visiting noteworthy.ie forward slash newsletter. Thanks for having us and see you next time.